get too far going this morning. I want us to stop and pray again here just for a moment. I'm going to invite us to do this regularly as we go forward as a church because I believe that we need to stop and just take a couple of minutes and simply pray and ask Jesus, who is the head of the church, to provide for Emmaus Road a new facility in 2024. Uh, that, that he would provide a place for us. That, that uh, This has been a great provision from the Lord, this theater. But I, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the next step. Um, and, and the Lord, I believe, wants to do that. How he does that, how fast he does that, that's his prerogative. But we, we're tasked with the asking, the seeking and asking. And so we're just going to ask. And, uh, and, and so we're going to do it often as we go forward. So I just uh, invite you for the next couple of minutes here. We just pray for uh, right where you are. You, you murmur prayers. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you, you're not going to be shouting at each other, but if there's a group of you and you're just kind of praying together, um, praying for direction for Emmaus Road, praying for provision, and then God, God's clear leading in all things. So let's just take just a couple of minutes. Let's just pray together for those things. Jesus, we seek you for direction. That you would be clear with us. Just like the Israelites of old, when you stopped, they stopped. When you moved, they moved. The pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We don't have a pillar of cloud or fire, but we have your word and we have your Holy Spirit in us. And Lord, we just ask that you would guide us just like you guided them. Um, and that we would, we would stay in your direction. We would follow right behind you. We would not lag behind. We would not get ahead of you, but we would be right with you, Lord. And we pray for provision. We're not a, a huge, wealthy like, conglomerate of people, um, but Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. The, the word tells us, and we're just asking you to sell a couple of those cattle and um, send us the money, Lord. <laughs> You're good. You're a good God. You provide for your people. And Lord, we just trust your clear leading in all things. You, are, you, you don't stutter. You don't play games with us. You tell us exactly what you want us to do, and you give us the next steps, and you, you show us what's in front of us. And, and help us to be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us, Lord, so that we might be considered to take on more stewardship, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we're just going to keep petitioning you regularly and coming to you as your people, not to try to wear you down to get what we want, but just to, just to be faithful to ask, to seek, to knock on the door. And we know that you're a good father and you give us all things in your timing and in your way, and we wait upon you. Amen. <coughs> so, <clears throat> as we dig in this morning, I just want to acknowledge again our teaching team here at Emmaus Road. Um, I get every sixth week, on average, off to rest my brain, and I'm really grateful for that. And last week, Marcus just... And he hit it out of the park with his sermon. He showed us in the text that the religious leaders love themselves not as their neighbors, but over and above their neighbors. And that was something that God hated. 
And that sermon was on point. We were all challenged to hear and obey the word of the Lord last week. If you weren't here, I urge you to go back and listen to it. You can watch it online. It's, we have a YouTube channel. We have a Vimeo channel. Uh, so, so go back and, and watch it or listen to it. But our call is not simply to know truth. The call of Jesus Christ is to do truth. And to do it, you have to know it. But you can't stop it just knowing it. Because knowledge puffs up, but love, what? It builds up, right? So it's the doing of the truth that builds up the church, that builds up the Christian and, and, and the body of Christ. And that should be our aim in life. It's not enough to know something or, or even to know about something. See, God wants us to act according to the knowledge and wisdom that he affords us in his word. And, and, that, and again, that wisdom and knowledge in life is found in the pages of the Bible. It's God's breathed out word. The, 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 the Greek is theonoustos. Theo is the shorthand for God. Noustos is uh, new, where we get pneumatic, right? It's air. It's breathing and so this is breathed out by God. His word is breathed out to us. And, and Marcus reminded us that self-love does not satisfy. It doesn't want you to change and become more like Jesus. And it's often used as an excuse for sin. And he admonished us last week not to simply know the truth of God's word, but to do the truth of God's word. And I, and I want to carry that over into today's sermon. So remember that this is the climax of Jesus's controversies with the religious leaders during the Passion Week. He is going to the cross to die for the sins of the world, and he knows it full well. So, so don't get confused with other churches and other theologies talking about, well, Jesus, Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world. He only died for the elect. Don't, don't, don't get caught up in that, that mess. If you're hearing that from brothers and sisters in the church, capital C, and in your life, I'd love to help you understand that theology and how to, and better equip you to refute those claims. So let me know. We'll do lunch. We'll do coffee. I'll meet you anywhere, anytime to help you think through that. But the idea that God has preordained and pre-chosen in eternity past who will and won't be saved is foreign to the Bible. Is foreign to the Bible. Salvation is available to all. And that's why we talk about the well-meant gospel offer here. Okay? We talk about well-meant means, means that it's, it's a genuine offer. It's genuine. And it's why we share the gospel. Any and all may come to the foot of the cross and receive forgiveness, salvation, and grace. That's, that's the promise of Jesus. The Pharisees had come to Jesus... But they did not come to Jesus for forgiveness or salvation. And not all the Pharisees were as bad as they could be, but they were very much askew from God's word and very much off from God's heart. But there was at least one who had the wherewithal to go and meet Jesus early on and, and kind of get a read on this rabbi for himself. Going around, this guy was going around preaching and teaching. So, so uh, Nicodemus. Um, he, he learned a valuable lesson, and so do we. And so I just want to read you here this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus early on, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. 
It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus in broad daylight in the, in the sight of everybody. No, that's not in the text. He came by night. Which is where the, you know, Nick at night? Okay. You got to just slide him in when you can. You just got to just... Um, he came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one could do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, uh, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say it to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, right, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's going from, where it's coming or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. <clears throat> so Nicodemus said, okay, so how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know or understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I love it when Jesus talks in, in, the, you know, in the third person. There's other, there's other the, the Trinity's involved here, okay? He's, he's talking plural uh, people here, and it's the Trinity. He says, um, verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how we believe if, what, if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So salvation is only applied when the individual apprehends it for themselves by the power of the Spirit of God. But it's available to all. And I just want to get that out of the way. I want to make sure we're all on the same page about that. So with that, let's go to the text here this morning and Matthew and Mark and Luke all record this short paragraph, uh, slightly different in Matthew, but let's read these together. So Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer a word 
to him, nor from that day did anyone else dare to ask him any more questions. I love that. Here's Mark's account. Mark 12, 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. They were just enjoying seeing the religious leaders put to task, right? These guys can't even answer this rabbi. It's awesome. And then Luke 20, 41 to 44. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? They couldn't figure it out. The Pharisees had gathered to ask him a question, but Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he, right? And, they, and, and again, they said, son of David, son of David. Only Matthew's gospel records that little bit of information. And this is the climax of the controversies with the religious leaders over the past few days since Jesus had come into Jerusalem on that colt. Remember the foal of the donkey? In, in, uh, right in the uh, alignment with Zechariah 9.9, right? That prophecy. Now, some commentators erroneously claim that this passage in the Gospels has Jesus repudiating the claim that he's the Son of God. I don't know why anyone would come to that conclusion. They claim that Jesus is actually saying that he's not the Messiah here. But that's ludicrous. Given the gospel accounts, along with all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled during his life on earth. I really don't think that that assertion that they make deserves any of our time or attention. Since the New Testament makes the claim many times that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and others claimed that he was the Son of God. We've got enough eyewitnesses. So, so let's talk about the Christos. That's Latin for Christ, the Christ. It simply means Messiah. Christ means anointed one. And we know that he was and is the son of David in the lineage of David, King David, right? And this is the, it's very important for us as we go forward. Now, I don't know if any of you are completed Jews, if you grew up in a Jewish household, but probably not. We're probably all Gentiles, I think. Um, and so it, it's, it's a really kind of a different thing for us coming to the Bible as Gentiles. For the Jews, this would have been a really, really big deal. And, and so, um, again, we know that, that he's the son of David. And in Isaiah chapter 9, back in the prophets, the, the major prophets, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we read this uh, just a while back when we, we at Christmas time. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says, For unto us a child is born. This is, the, this is the passage that Handel wrote. Nobody? No, no choir nerds, no music nerds. Handel, Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is... Everybody thinks, oh, oh that, that was a great, great piece of music. Where did that come from? The Bible. The Bible. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end. But he's going to establish it. On the increase of his government, there'll be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish this, which means you and I are going to accomplish this. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to use us. He's going to work through us, but he's going to accomplish it. So the child born speaks to Jesus's humanity, while the son who is given speaks to Jesus's divinity. He's both fully human, fully God. He he is the one who rules, um, and the government of the entire world does and will rest upon his shoulders, for he alone is strong enough to reign and rule over the entire earth. Even Satan, during the tribulation period, during the time of Jacob's trouble, will not have complete, full reign over all the earth. God, God has seen to that. There will be evangelism. Did you know this? If you read Revelation, very interesting. There will be evangelism happening on a scale we've never seen before. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish male witnesses preaching the gospel, sealed so that the Antichrist can't touch them, can't kill them, can't put them to death. We, we read in Revelation that the two witnesses in Jerusalem, were, they're going to be proclaiming the gospel. And, and the word says, and for, for a long time, people couldn't understand how this would be. This is every person on the earth would see that happen. Well, if I'm on the opposite side of the planet, how do I see what's happening in Jerusalem? CNN. <laughs> we have that ability now. I can, I can push a button and see what's happening on the other side of the planet. So, so we've got the 144,000 Jewish male witnesses. We've got two witnesses in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel. There's an eagle uh, in Revelation flying in the sun, shouting the gospel. Okay. I, I just, I personally believe it's going to be the great har- greatest harvest of souls that's ever, we've ever seen. And, and, and they're going to be the ones to see the demon locusts coming up out of the pit. They're going to be the ones to see all these things happening. I wouldn't want to be here for that. I'll, I'll, I'll take the cheap seats. Give me up high. I'll look down. That's fine. I actually, th- I, used to, I used to talk like that a lot. Like, oh, I want to watch. I want to like, get over on the edge of the cloud and be like, oh, what's going on down there? But you know what? I've really come to believe that the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to be so incredible. I'm not even going to have an impulse to want to go look at the destruction. I'm just going to want to be with Jesus. But getting back to Jesus, Paul says this in Romans 1, 1 through 4. He says, Paul... He's introducing himself here in this letter. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did you know that God had promised the gospel that was coming through the prophets? You need to read your Old Testament. Concerning the son who was descended from David, according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's our deliverer. He's our rescuer. He's the one who saves us from our sins and from the penalty of those sins. Now, some commentators have it all backwards and upside down. 
when they assert that Jesus is actually repudiating the claim to be the Messiah in the text. But that's just the farthest thing from the truth. He's embracing it fully. That was his mission. It's what he came to do. It's, what, it's who he came to be. It's who he is. So whose son is he? Well, we just read in Isaiah that a son is given. Mary contributed biologically, and God did the rest. And just like we talked about back at Christmas, Jesus was Joseph's son by adoption. So again, the son of David means offspring of or in the line or in the lineage of David. And that's a big deal because David was a king of Israel. See, Jesus never argued this point with anyone. Though he did make the claim, he had no need to argue or debate whether or not he was who he claimed to be. He never got into that with people. Jesus operated in power and authority, and he never derived his authority from his lineage or from his physical descent, his ancestry, humanly. He never, he never stood on that, okay? David was the only good king of Israel in the pre-exilic years, so before they went into exile for the first time. So there were three kings. Do you remember Saul, David, Solomon? Okay? Saul was not a good king of Israel. He was chosen for his height and stature and good looks. He, they looked at the outward appearance, and then they made him king. He looked the part, but he was a coward. He was unable to fulfill his role as a true leader. David became king after Saul, and he did some great things. But he also sinned a good bit and didn't honor the Lord in everything. He did, though, own his sin. He repented. He was contrite and humble before the Lord. And David stands as the best king Israel ever had. But check out this promise in 2 Samuel 7 uh, from the Lord to David. Listen to this, 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16. This is, uh, yeah, so this is the Lord speaking through Samuel to David saying, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. You were just scooping goat poo. And I took you out and I, and I made you prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house and when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring from you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be unto me as a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne is established forever. That's a big deal. So now Solomon came after David, right? Being his son. So you have Saul, David, Solomon. And Solomon was a bad king. Now, many will point to Solomon's um, olive branches to the nations around them to have peace with one another. Bringing relative peace for many years. Many people will point to the immense wealth that made Israel famous in those days, seeing Solomon's reign as the zenith of Israel so that even you know, foreign dignitaries would come. They said, well, we, ha- we haven't even, we've heard of this, but we haven't even seen anything like this ever. The, the sheer wealth that was in Israel at that moment in time. But they, see, in, in being caught up in all that, They miss the forest for the trees, as the saying goes, because Solomon, along with all the kings of Israel, was forbade three things. There there were three rules you couldn't have or couldn't do. Do you know what they are? You you cannot multiply horses. What's the big deal about horses? Well, those were the tanks of that day. Okay, This is about military might, because God fought for them. And that was the deal. God fights for you. You don't fight for you. So you remember that God's real and, and he takes care of you. you. You don't go fight unless the Lord tells you to do something. But God fights for you. And so, so the, the horses, multiplying horses was forbade. Multiplying wealth, gold and silver, which corrupts the heart, was, was forbidden. And multiplying wives who would lead his heart astray into the worship of idols. And even to the point where you read the, the, the Old Testament, you read about Solomon, he was sacrificing his own babies to Molech and to these false gods. He had how, how many wives? Hundreds? He put Planned Parenthood to shame. So, so some of these promises in 2 Samuel 7 have been fulfilled but not all. And some of them are still to come. And, and here's a psalm that will help us understand this unique place that Jesus occupies in all of this history, okay? It's Psalm 110, and it's a psalm of David. And this is what David says. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So who's doing the work? Yeah, the Lord. The Lord sends forth from Zion, verse 2, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's speaking to the Messiah specifically here. You are a priest forever after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Didn't he appear back in Genesis somewhere? That was a weird chapter. What was that about? He's the king of Salem. What does Salem mean? Salem means, oh, peace. Hmm. Okay. So, So the Lord is at your right hand. We'll finish the text here. 
He shatters kings on the day of his wrath. He executes judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. So he's going to prevail. God, Jesus as this person is going to prevail over all. So David becomes a typology or a type of Christ. But the question we need to ask is, in what ways? Well, Jesus is the rightful king, and he's a direct descendant of David in the royal line. He's a defender of his people. He led honorably for the most part. He had some slip-ups, but he walked with the Lord, and he was humble for the most part. Those things cannot be said of Saul prior to David, and they certainly cannot be said of Solomon after David. Especially the idea that they, they, they stayed close to the Lord and wanted to walk in obedience. When you read about Solomon, you, you can't possibly come to that conclusion. So we have an apparent conundrum. <coughs> if Jesus really is the son or the offspring of David, how can David say, by the Spirit of God, the Lord said to my Lord? And the problem lies with the assumptions that the Jews had made about lineage, from Abraham all the way to Isaac, all the way to Israel. The further back you go in the Bible, the greater and more revered the patriarchs are, right? So the Jews look back on the timeline longingly for the glory days of the patriarchs. And, and, and so um, revering them much like middle-aged guys who played high school football and think about the glory days, just like that. Guys, yeah, anybody? Oh, I remember uh, yeah, I ran for a touchdown. Uh, yeah, that was like 50 years ago. <sighs> yeah, right? Um, but here in the text, we see that something greater than the patriarchs has come. Jesus. He's not a patriarch. He's the son of God. Come in the flesh. And, and this is large, a large part of why they had difficulty in seeing Jesus for who he really was. So as Gentile believers, us, believing on Jesus, we've been grafted into that olive tree, okay? We've been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, and we can actually see a little more clearly on this particular point, because we're not caught up in all the Jewishness of the, the ancestry and how important they were, right? They're important. They're a big deal. Can't wait to meet Joseph. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. So, so we've been engrafted, and as Christians, we appreciate and are deeply grateful to those who've come before, and especially those noted in Scripture whom God used mightily. All of that's been for our good. All of that has resulted in our salvation, and so we receive it with gladness. We receive it with humility, but we don't have the same set of lenses on that the Jews have even today when they read their Scriptures. And, and um, it's because of the gospel, right? It's because we're in the church age. We don't assume that the patriarchs were better like they do. They go, well, the, the further back you go to the beginning, the better the patriarchs were. And we don't make that assumption. And so um, Luke 20, 41 to 44 says, but he said to them, so this is back to Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees, how how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him, David's descendant, Lord. 
So how is he his son? We would ask the question like this. How is it that David, who was a great king in the sight of God, would look ahead to a later time and call his offspring greater than himself? It doesn't make any sense. That, that would be a difficult question for us to answer if we weren't on this side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But because of that event, we see that he's the greater David. He's the better David. He has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died the sacrificial death. His blood covering and atoning for the sins of the world. His salvation is available to whosoever will come in humility and simply ask. It's available to anyone. And when anyone turns and repents and puts their faith in Jesus alone, that person is saved. And so now we wait upon him. We wait upon his return, and as we wait, we make him known. And Shiloh will come. I remember the first time I heard that name, Shiloh. One of the great mentors I've had since entering full-time ministry was Bob Dukes. I had stumbled into the college and career class at New Hope Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, way down there in the, in the deep south. And uh, I, I was with my girlfriend at that time, who was not Jen, um, though I met Jen at that church. And Bob, who was the leader of the college and career class, um, he loved and still loves the word, and, and his love for it is so contagious it's how Jen and I both came to love the word so much, was his, his mentorship and teaching. But I remember the first time I heard Bob utter the phrase, he said this, he said, we're waiting for Shiloh to come. Shiloh is coming. And he would work that into like every other week in his talk. And, and the first time I heard it, and many times after, it just stirred in my soul, and I couldn't shake those words out of my mind. Bob would just say it in the middle of a talk. He'd say, oh, and when Shiloh comes, and then my heart would leap for I knew not what. It was just something that happened. I was like, what? That's important, but I don't, I don't understand it. I know that it's important. Bob would just say it randomly. And maybe you're having that experience this morning. You and I, you and I were made for worship. And Shiloh is the only one worthy of that worship. Remember that Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah. We've established that. We can see the fact in the family records in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. Or we could read, read it in the Old Testament. The 39 books in, in the Old Testament, we can see in Genesis 49.10 and in Isaiah 11.1 1, that Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah. We've established that. And so Shiloh will come. The word Shiloh occurs 33 times in the Old Testament, depending on your translations. Many of the newer translations do not use that name or title at all, and I think it's to the, to the detriment of the church. Shiloh means the one of peace or the peaceful one or him who is sent. And all of that is, is, is an allusion to Messiah's arrival, his coming, and then his coming again. G Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 to 12, 
this is this is the section in the in in the first book of the Bible about the patriarchs, and and Judah. Um, Genesis says, Judah, your brother shall praise you, right? He's the leader of the clan because he's the firstborn, Judah. And so your brother shall praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Up from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion or a lioness and who dares to rouse him? And then in verse 10, it says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. That's a bad translation. It should say until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And, and then in Genesis 49, listen to this, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Where do we just, where do we just see that weeks ago? In the coming into into Jerusalem, right? Okay, until he comes. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah or the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, until Shiloh comes, and he will, and, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. I don't know quite to, what to do with the last sentence there, but that's what it says. From the first book of our Bible to the last, listen to this, Revelation 5, 1 through 5, listen to what it says. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll that was written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw this mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And John, who's writing all this down, he says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, stop blubbering. He said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus belongs to the tribe of Judah, but Israel's priests had come from the tribe of Levi. They were the male members of Aaron's family, and Aaron belonged to the tribe as Israel's first priest. So nobody from the tribe of Judah could ever be a priest except Christ only. And Christ had to be a priest in order to carry out his special work before God as our intercessor. But he could not be a priest by the laws that Moses gave because the ministry would only extend to the, to the Jewish-Israeli nationality. That's as far as it would go and not to the whole world. So again, we have to remember that Christ is the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So Christ had to be a priest by some other rule. And there was such a rule. And we see it in Melchizedek, who was a priest, although he was not from the tribe of Levi. And Melchizedek was a greater priest than anyone in Aaron's family, which is why they gave him tribute. Go back and read that text. 
It was the same rule that God appointed Christ to our chief priest, not under the ministry of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which means peace. And Christ is an even greater priest than Melchizedek. That blows my mind. So, So nobody from the tribe of Judah could ever be a priest except Christ only. And Christ had to be a priest in order to carry out his special work in God, but he couldn't be a priest by the laws that Moses gave Christ was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, and thus he's the high priest and the king, because Judah's the ruling, right? <laughs> Praise be to God for his wonderful working on our behalf. Amen? He's so good. Praise be unto the Lord. Shiloh has come, and Shiloh is coming again. And he who comes from the ruling tribe of Judah will not delay. He to whom the ruler's staff belongs will come speedily. He is Messiah. He is the bringer of peace. It is he who has the right to rule, and he will. He will. And it says in the Bible, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will bring unprecedented peace and blessings upon the earth during his coming reign. So let us be a people praying with watchfulness and anticipation. And I'll leave you here with 1 Peter 5, 7 to 11. Listen to this. Cast some of your anxieties on him. (laughs) Cast all, all of your anxieties on him. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, Peter says. Your adversary, you have an enemy That adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, just looking for somebody to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. I would love to recommend some books to you. I'll put them up this week on social media about what's happening to our brothers and sisters all over the world. It would be good for you to read some of that. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, not going to delegate it, he will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we just praise you this morning for your good plan. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that before you ever incarnated in Mary's womb, long before, before the earth was made, before the stars were breathed out, this was the plan. And we thank you. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your goodness and grace. And we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Timidity. Fear. The worry that any given action or speech is going to cause it all to fall apart. We're so prone to that. But because of God's word, we reject timidity. We embrace courage. We embrace the truth. We reject apathy.
We reject fear, and instead, we choose to engage with the Great Commission. And the reason for our courage and boldness is because Shiloh has come, and Shiloh is coming again. So make ready your hearts and preach the gospel to all who will listen. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.